This is the audio of Bible study taught by Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. You can find our website at goodshepherdlincoln.org, and there's a uh, treasure trove of other information available there as well. Uh, let's get into Bible study now. All right, there are new sheets this week. So if you want to grab those sheets, they are up here. We are collecting for um, the Siberian Mission Society, and so we encourage you to uh, donate for that. I think our elders going around the basket now. want to point out up here as well uh, a new thing that we have uh, right on the wall above the Bibles. We have a map and pictures of all of our, maybe not all of them, but many of our college students who have been coming and attending here at Good Shepherd. Uh, So we have a picture, their name, and where they're from. Uh, It's not super accurate because the pictures are much, I mean, one picture is probably the size of Ohio there, but uh, uh, you can take a look at that and hopefully get to know them a little bit uh, via that map. So take a look there. We are working our way through Genesis, and uh, last time we had just kind of gotten through the first couple of verses. We had talked about um, how God created things through His Word, and how He spoke and things came into existence. And so we're going to pick up right after that. Before we do... One of the new things that we're doing is we're having a hymn of the month, and you can read about the hymn of the month, some of the history from it, in the news and notes. And the hymn for September is, Why Should Cross and Trial Grieve Me? And I believe our children's choir is learning this hymn this month, and we'll sing it towards the end of the month. And uh, we're going to sing the first verse and the last verse. The last verse is a really great one. It was sung by the author, um, uh, uh, Paul Gerhard. I lost his first name for a minute, almost said John Gerhard. Paul Gerhard, um, as he was dying, these are the words, the last words that he confessed. And uh, it's really a great one. I'm not the greatest singer in the world, so we'll do our best to get the right notes. I was practicing yesterday, and... um, my kids were making fun of me because they're already learning it in children's choir, and they said, you're singing the wrong notes, Dad. So <laughs> we'll try and do it together. Unless, Rich, you want to accompany us on the piano? Okay. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Why should cross and trial grieve me? Christ is near with his cheer, never will he leave me. Who can rob me of the heaven that God's Son for me won when his life was given? Now in Christ death cannot slay me, though it might day and night trouble and dismay me. 
Christ has made my death a portal from the strife of this life to his joy immortal. All right, former vicar, did I get most of the notes? Okay, okay. Yeah, that's good. He doesn't have to say that anymore. Since, <laughs> All right. We're going to pick up then in the book of Genesis, and we're going to start on day one, which is Genesis 1, verses 3 through 5. Verses 3 through 5. So we ended last time with this verse, verse 3, where it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And the thing that we didn't get to in the last packet of notes was, if God creates things by the power of His Word, what does that mean His Word can do for you? Right? If God calls all that we know and see and experience into existence merely with His Word, what does it mean when God's Word says to you, I forgive you all of your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Yeah, it's kind of like, did you ever see the musical The King and I? Okay, right? And um, Yule Brenner, he's going around throughout the whole musical in the, the movie version, and what's he say? So let it be written... So let it be done. And that's the same way with God's Word. When He says something, what He says happens. If He says, let there be light, then there is light. And if I had that ability, it would not be good, because I'd be like every day for lunch. Let there be pepperoni pizza with extra cheese and a dessert of Reese's peanut butter cups. You know, I'd be 800 pounds... For sure. When God says something to you in His Word, it is true. When He says your sins are forgiven, it is true. When He says, take and eat, this is my body, it is true. When He says, I baptize you, it is true that your sins are forgiven. All the things that God says really, truly happen. And we see that in Genesis 1. So I'm going to start reading at verse 3 again. That's what we missed from the last packet. We're going to pick up with verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. All right, so now we see when God is speaking things, what the things are that He speaks into existence. And the first one is light. Uh, And you can learn a little Hebrew during this Bible study. The Hebrew word for light is or. Okay, Uh, O-A-R, or, that's light, okay? He brings it into existence, and as soon as he brings it into existence, he looks at it, and what does he say? It is good. Again, when God says, it is good, what does that mean about the light? 
Right. What God says is true. So the light is good. We see this echoed in the first part of John's gospel as well, which we'll be preaching on on Thursday at Matins at 1230. That um, the light now shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And that is good for, uh, for us and for us as uh, a species and a people. The other thing that we're going to talk about I want to point out is this division between night and day. He separates the light and the darkness. He calls the light day. He calls the darkness night. So immediately when God calls into existence the light, He begins day and night. And this is important for several reasons. Um, First off, it does show if there's evening and morning. We talked a couple weeks ago about how we reject theistic evolution. And, And theistic evolution sounds like this. Have you talked to someone who said, well, how do you know that in the creation account, a day really means a day, and it doesn't mean a billion years? Have you talked to somebody who said that? Okay, I have. (laughs) Okay, how do we know? Because what's he say? There was evening, and then there was morning, and it was the first day. Okay, not theistic evolution, one day, normal day. This also then is important for us later on in Scripture as we read events taking place because it says there was evening and then morning for the Jewish mind who writes the rest of Scripture, a day begins in the evening at sunset. Okay, so it's at sunset that the next day begins. This is different than us. When does a new day begin? Technically, at 12 midnight, right? And I guess I'm getting old enough now. I don't often see the beginning of a day, right? Because I need all the beauty sleep I can get. Um, For us, it starts at midnight. In the Jewish mind, it doesn't. It starts at evening. This is why their Sabbath begins at sunset. This is important then when we look at the crucifixion of Christ during Holy Week on Good Friday. Because we say Jesus was in the tomb for how many days? Three Three days. And then you look and you say, but wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. It does if the day begins at sunset, because he dies in the afternoon around three o'clock, and they get him in the tomb and buried before sunset. So he's in the tomb on Friday, he's in the tomb all day Saturday, and he's in the tomb on Sunday, at least after sunset, and sometime between sunset and sunrise, and the scripture says very early in the morning, the Greek word is uh, proi, very early in the morning, Jesus rises from the dead. And so he's in the tomb on those three days. And understanding the way that works kind of helps us to see that. Okay? Um, So, 
That's the way the Jewish calendar works. And keep that in mind as you read the rest of Scriptures because it helps reveal some of the important things. Any questions on the calendar? Done. Yeah, the question is, if there was no sun, moon, or stars, there would still be light. And I did not pay him to ask that question, but here's the next slide. (laughs) Okay, yeah. The light doesn't come from the sun, the moon, or the stars at this point because they are not. Instead, the light comes because God's Word called it into existence. Okay? It means that light, in that sense, is coming from God and His Word. Okay? Now there's a little bit more about that. Uh, is your question on this topic? or? Right, right. Now, Tim's, Tim's comment is, we see in the book of Revelation, when it talks about forever, that in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no sun, because God himself is the light of that, that new creation. And there, there's some truth to that. I'm going to focus us to say this light is coming from his word, um, and not from him Specifically, in this sense, uh, St. Augustine says, We are told this light was made, it was brought into existence. God Himself is light as well, but what do we know about the light that comes from God? Was God made? No, thereby the light that comes from Him is not made as well. So we do have a little bit of a distinction there now, here, in the creation, that is a little different than what will be in the uh, world and ages that are to come. Okay? So the light born from God is the very wisdom of God, but the light made from God is something mutable, whether corporal, corporeal or incorporeal. Okay, so there is a little bit of a distinction there. Look at this, I've, I've planned ahead for all the questions so far. <laughs> Did I answer yours, Don? Okay, other questions? I'm trying to go through this fairly quickly so we can slow down on some of the other parts here. I want to talk about this as well. We have a refrain that goes throughout all the creation account that we already mentioned briefly, the refrain of, it was good. God looks at the things that he's made, and he says, it was good. And when we hear that, good means good, (laughs) right? Um, It was good, very good, in fact. But what I want to point out is there is a distinction between the goodness of the creation that God makes 
and again the new heavens and earth that we will live in forever. Okay? And that is the same distinction that we just spoke about a minute ago. God calls things into existence. He says they're good, but at this point, they are corruptible by sin. When we die, when we go to be with God, when we're raised from the dead, the things that we will see and live in and experience will no longer be corruptible. And in that sense, the resurrection and the world to come is even better than it was for Adam and Eve in the beginning. And Luther speaks about this some in his commentary on this section as well, um, pointing out that Christ's, the whole plan from God in the beginning was for Christ to come and dwell with his people and for sin to never even be allowed at that point. But before that came, Adam and Eve fell into sin and the world was corrupted. And so what we see now is fallen, broken, sinful. And when we die and rise again, that world will not be fallen, broken, or sinful. And when you die and rise again, you will not be able to fall into sin again. (laughs) We need a clap for that one, I heard. Okay? So that's important to keep in mind. It was good, but there was that ability for it to fall. I do want to make another distinction. That does not make God the author or creator of evil. Okay? God did not make the world evil. He made it good. The creation itself rebelled against him and fell. And we'll talk a lot more about this in chapter 3 when we get there. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Okay. Questions? Clint. We think holy or perfect when we see the word good. The question is, can we think holy? We think like, I think the word holy would be appropriate. I think it's more than just like, okay, how many people this morning have asked you how you are and you said, good. And when you say good that way, what's it mean? Yeah, I've got a pulse, I'm vertical, and I'm here, right? Okay. It's more than that. I, I personally shy away from using the word perfect because what's better than perfect? Nothing. And in the resurrection, it will be better. And so, and it will always be getting better. World without end. So for that reason, I don't like to use the word perfect when I speak about the original creation. 
What do you think? Okay. I see another hand. Deb. Yeah, so the question is, um, if in the resurrection we'll be incorruptible, why didn't God just do it that way in the beginning? Because that would have been a lot better for us, right? We think, because what wouldn't we have? Sin and death and suffering and all those things. The answer on one level, and this is probably the correct answer, is we cannot understand God's wisdom in doing this. A helpful thing, I think, to think about this, but I cannot say this is the right answer because I cannot read God's mind, is if, if I came up before we started dating to my wife with a loaded gun and I held it to her head and I said, you should go on a date with me and marry me and tell me that you love me. And she had no choice in the matter. Is, does she actually really love me? And I think in building in that choice, God gives that opportunity for real love. Now, is that, is that necessarily the answer? I don't know, but it's the best one that I could come up with. It's probably beyond our ability to understand, and we just have to, to answer that. Okay, Pastor Goodroad. And that's what he said, so that Christ could come. And that's the answer Luther gives in his uh, commentary as well. Meaning this way, Jesus is not the backup plan. (laughs) He is the plan. Now, the tough thing with that is, even if we hadn't fallen into sin, he was still the plan and still would have come and taken us from the corruptible world into changing it into the incorruptible world. We just get to experience the corruptible part a lot better now. Okay. Day one. Um, I want to point this out. In the Hebrew, the it is good, that is said out loud seven times. Why seven? Perfection, right? It's a complete number. God likes the number three, and God likes the number seven, and God likes the number 12. You see those numbers a lot. Seven times God is going to say in the Hebrew text, about the creation, that it is good. 
In the Septuagint text, God says it is good seven times. But then he also adds in it's a very good at the end, which is eight. And we'll see here, I think, at day two or three, there's a, where the difference is. Now, why the number eight? <laughs> What's the number eight mean? Anybody know? It, well, infinity, eternity, right? You can see this in math. The symbol for infinity is an eight on its side, right? That little squiggly whoop-de-woo. That's a technical phrase. The number eight is the number for eternity and recreation. Jesus rose from the dead on the eighth day. And for many, many years, and in many, many churches even till today, baptismal fonts have eight sides because it's your rebirth, your recreation in the waters of holy baptism. When the Lutheran church began new and they were actually building their own churches instead of taking over old churches that had been built before, they often, this would be like in Scandinavia, built them in the shape of octagons with eight sides to say this is the place where we come to receive eternity and recreation and eternal life. And so in the original that Moses wrote, was it seven it is goods, and the last one being very good? Or is it like in the Septuagint, and there were seven normal goods, and the last one was a very good eight total? I don't know. I kind of like both of them. <laughs> but you'll notice that refrain going on throughout the days of creation. All except in one place in the Hebrew, and that is day two. All right, so let's read day two. God said, let there be an expanse, or as uh, we heard last week from Pastor Poppy, a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse, or the firmament, the dividing thing, Heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Okay, so he's going to put a dividing line between the waters the waters above from the waters below, the stuff up there from the stuff down here, the heavens from the sea or the midst of the stuff that's down here. Now, the question is, what is he talking about? There are some who say, ah, oh, the people who wrote this thousands of years ago were very dumb. And so they looked up in the sky and they saw the sky was what color? Blue. blue. And they also knew what other thing was blue. And so they said, ah, oh, since the sky is blue, there must be water up there. And that's what they're talking about. I don't think that's what he's saying, personally. You remember last time I told you that in the ancient mind for the, the Hebrews, 
There are different levels of the up there stuff. There's the sky down here where the birds are. And then there's the sky above that where the planets and the sun and the moon are. And then there's a third one that's farther away that you cannot see, that is separated, and that's where God is. That's what I believe he's separating. He's separating where God is from the things down here. There's creating a firmament that keeps God's heaven hidden from our eyes. There are a few times where that firmament is opened. Okay? Perhaps the clearest one is when Jesus is baptized. Uh, Is it Mark's gospel? That um, Jesus comes out of the water and the heavens are ripped open and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and God's voice blares out of the rip. Okay? Where's God's voice coming from? The up there heavens, which we normally cannot see, but at this instance it is ripped open and the voice comes down and the Holy Spirit comes down. There's a few other places in the scripture where the same idea is brought forth, and I'm going to talk more about it specifically when we talk about the Garden of Eden. Because I think the Garden of Eden is another place where, this, where the two come together. And I'll try and make my case for that when we get there. All right. I see lots of uh, faces here. Questions are clarifying. <laughs> am I making sense or am I sounding like a crazy person? Nobody can answer that. <laughs> yeah, Tim. An alternative theory um, is that the waters above the heavens were what kind of was the source of the water that uh, rained down for 40 days uh, during Noah's flood. What do you think of that? I mean, I've heard that also. Uh, uh, answers in Genesis, I think, puts that idea forward. And they say that... The early earth, uh, during the time of Adam and Eve, up until the time of Noah, uh, had water floating above it in a thick, heavy cloud layer that increased the air pressure down here. And that's then also the reason that people lived longer and that plants grew lusher and that you could have things like dinosaurs and things like that in the creation because the waters above increased the air pressure down here. And my, un, my, my nervousness about that is it's actually a form of scientism that is making the cause of these things to be something other than God. And I'm always uncomfortable with that. Because I I believe that when God made it rain the 40 days and the 40 nights, if God can say, let there be light, he can also do what? 
Say, let it rain for 40 days and 40 nights and bring into existence and take out of existence any water necessary to cover the earth in that way. I've heard that. I'm not sold on it. It's It's a theory. Can we know for sure all the details of the world pre-flood. No, because they were completely different. All right, I saw another hand. Corby? Yeah, yeah. Pastor Goodroad, I saw your hand also. Okay. Okay. No, that's okay. <laughs> where, where I'm still not comfortable is to say the answer in Genesis thing that there's increased air pressure because that's not what the Scripture says. Yep. Um, but there's a number of different explanations that all involve waters up there somewhere. Yeah. And what I would submit to you is all we want to say is what the scripture says. And so I have no problem saying God is separating the up there stuff from the down here stuff. I'm not even opposed to the windows being opened because the scripture says it. I think what he's putting up there, the waters above, the Shemayim, is where God is. And even in Revelation, when we see the new heaven and the new earth, what do we hear? That there's water up there. And that there's the river of life. And that its surface is unrippled and pure and clear, like diamond and glass, right? Um, And so, in my mind, that's where the distinction and the division is. Okay, and we will talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the Garden of Eden as well, because I think when we think about it that way, then we see all these places where that division, that firmament, is being opened so that we're able to get through. Like when the curtain temple's torn, like when Jesus is baptized, um, like when God comes down in a flaming chariot and takes Elijah. Those things then are where God is coming through. And it's almost like a, we, we, the Feast of Booths points towards this as well, uh, where they would build a booth and this, the open, it had to be open to the sky except for plants and leaves. We'll, There's lots we could talk about. (laughs) All right. Expanse from the stuff above and the stuff down here. Now, in the Hebrew text that I just read, there is no, it is good for day two. Now, there's 
In the, Hebrew, in the Greek text, it does say it is good. In the Hebrew text, it does not. I could make an argument for either one being correct. Even just based on this particular instance, I cannot tell you why or what. But in the Hebrew, there is no, it is good. But there is, it is evening and morning, the second day. Again, is this billions of years? No, because then there would be many evenings and many mornings. It's just one day again. Okay, now St. Augustine uses this. He's a Platonist. He believes God is this pure thing up there, and there's all these levels between us and them. He says, The waters are divided so that some were above the firmament and others below the firmament. Since we said that the matter was called water, he believes the firmament of heaven separated the corporeal matter of visible things from the incorporeal that's a hard word. Incorporal matter of invisible things. He's saying kind of the same thing that I'm trying to say with those levels of heaven. Now, we also have the idea, I think the firmament is not like a wall. Perhaps when Moses is writing this, we have to remember where's Moses living during this. He's living in a tent in the wilderness of Sinai. And the way that Scripture talks about the firmament, the, the sky, the division being put there, is that it was unrolled, or how many people have set up a tent? You know, the old wall tents, you used to have to go inside with the pole and stick the pole up, and the tent would be opened around you as you're inside of it. Or there's even... You, Vicar knows, former Vicar knows this movie, right? Um, where they had the circus people and they would put up the big top. Okay, not Dumbo, but they do it in there too. What's that movie? They had sawdust in their blood. They lived a circus life. All right, Leonard knows too. I can't think of the name. It's like that. You're inside, you put it up, and it unrolls and opens over the top of you. And we see in other places, like Psalm 104 and Revelation 6, that when the firmament is going to come to its end, it will be rolled up. And as that firmament is rolled up, what be, will become visible? What's on the other side? Heaven. Okay? And so the thing that's keeping it from our eyes will be opened uh, in that idea. Something to look forward to. We'll see it. Okay? All right. Now, we have to ask something that we don't have the details about when it was created, but we know that its creation are angels and archangels. Luther believes they were probably created on day two. There are also some who believe that they were created when the stars were created, uh, which is coming up, I think, on day four. We don't know when for sure that they were created, but we know that the angels and the archangels are, in fact, 
a part of the creation. They are not God. They are not eternal. They were created, and they were created good. And that's the important thing to remember. Whether they were created on day two or whether they were created on day four, they were created. There are good angels and bad angels. God made them all, but when he made them, he made them all good. God is not the author of evil. He did not make Satan bad. Satan became bad on his own. I think Isaiah 14 is perhaps the clearest passage on that when he says, How far you have fallen, morning star. You desired to put yourself above God. That's what happened with Satan. He was made good in the beginning. He corrupted himself and fell. And whether he was created on day two or on day four, we don't know. Okay? And to quote Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) All right. Questions? All right. We're going to have to pause there. Next week we'll pick up here with day two and we'll try to keep plugging away. Next week we'll install the new vicar, so make sure you say hello to him, introduce yourself. And next week we also have the church picnic, so sign up out there as well and plan on coming even if you don't get signed up. But that'll be out at the McKinney's place. If you need directions, let us know. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace.